Welcome to the AGA Podcast, where we bring you small talk on big topics from within the world of gastroenterology. Thanks for being with us. Now let's get started. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the AGA Podcast, small talk, big topics. I'm one of your hosts, Matthew Whitson, and today I am with Dr. Nina Nandy. Hello, Dr. Nandy. Hi, Matt. Hi, everybody out there. Happy New Year. Happy 2021. 2021, everyone. We are happy to be joined by Dr. Susan Reynolds. She's an emergency physician, medical center CEO, chief of staff, boot camp program director, and an author. So she's also actually actively involved in the AGA. So through the Institute for Medical Leadership that she is the president of, she's actually helped run the Future Leaders Program, and the Women's Leadership Conference. So she is very involved with our society here. And uh, on top of medical leadership, she has a career focus on wellness and burnout, which is what we're going to be talking about today, Nina. That's something we absolutely need to discuss, especially given this past year, 2020, and who knows what we have to look forward to this year, but it's certainly a topic on all of our minds. I mean, 2020, I think the technical word was a dumpster fire. So I think... You know, we, we did have that episode with Lori Kiefer talking about how to build resilience. Right. Hopefully, it's going to be kind of like a companion piece where we're going to talk about what's wellness, what's burnout, and really how to look for it in our colleagues, our trainees, and also ourselves. And what resources we can provide them. Hopefully, we will leave today with kind of some actions that we can take to really take care of ourselves. It's a tough time right now. It really is. So there you have it. This is a very important topic. I'm excited. You're excited. 2021 is going to be a good year, Nina. It's going to be a good year. Here we come. Here we go. All right, let's get to it. This is Dr. Susan Reynolds, and this is the AGA podcast. Here we go. Hi, everyone. We are very excited to bring to you Dr. Susan Reynolds. I'm Nina Nandy. I have Matt Whitson here, Dr. Reynolds. Would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your involvement in the AGA? Oh, thank you very much for having me today. It's a pleasure to join you all. I've actually been working for AGA for about six or even eight years. I do physician leadership training and development. I originally was trained in cardiology and critical care, ran ICUs, and then an ER for almost 20 years. But I switched over to leadership development originally for the AMA and then have been out teaching leadership skills to various societies I worked on the Women's Leadership Conference for AGA, as well as their Future Leader Program. So this is, I think, the third type of thing I've done for them, and I'm happy to contribute during the COVID-19 pandemic. Again, I coach, I deal with physicians at all levels in their career, and I'm happy to have a conversation with you today. Well, we're so glad to have you. Yeah, and so today we're going to spend a lot of time talking about wellness, burnout, and kind of what we can do in the middle of I would say, a challenging year and a more optimistic 2021. So to start off, how did you get involved in this arena? Just through the leadership or was there something that drew you to the area of wellness and and burnout for physicians and providers? Yeah, about, I say, seven or eight years ago, my hospital, St. John's Hospital in Santa Monica, California, had three women physicians kill themselves in a period of about two years. And if you'd gone back an extra year, there was a fourth one. Everybody was really upset and didn't know what happened. Nobody had expected yeah. this at all. We now know women 
depression, suicide is 250% higher than women in any other profession. It turns out there was a Kumbaya meeting with the psychiatrists and whatnot and the LA County Medical Association that I became president of in our district here in the west side of LA. The only thing they had at the time, they didn't have a well-being committee. They had an older psychiatrist that had a 1-800 on a beeper in his pocket, but nobody even knew the number. So there wasn't any way where those women physicians could have even reached out to get help. Um, and nobody else knew about it. They, I guess, isolated themselves. So I started getting very interested in this and then realized it's not just in that hospital. It's all over the country. Oh, yeah. That's where it started. One of my very best friends, uh, Dr. Lori Bernard, who delivered my baby 33 years ago, went and founded, set up a real well-being committee at St. John's. And I followed her process and how she's really helped. Nobody knew what one was. And she started by having roundtable discussions, focus groups with five, six, seven doctors at lunchtime and got kind of a, a momentum going where people became interested, not just in how do we help somebody in trouble, but also how do we be proactive going forward to make sure people stay healthy. And especially in the time of the pandemic here, it's really, really even more important. So just for everybody out there, how do you define wellness? Personally, I look at it not just physical health. You get your checkup, your blood pressure's okay, weight's okay, you're exercising, eating decent food. I look at it that there's a mental component, a very, very important mental component. And part of this is making sure you've got work-life balance and control, that you take care of practices that foster resilience. And I know you all have talked about resilience in the past, but even quiet times, meditative times, journaling times, those things will boost your mental capabilities to help you deal with stresses. I've always been looking at that. The stresses going on this year because of COVID-19 are just astronomical. So even more time, not just to focus on hopefully remember your diet, exercise if you can. Uh, I used to play tennis five days a week and tennis courts are closed here. So remembering the other things, nutrition and anything to reduce stress, especially also focusing on your mental well-being. From a definition standpoint, is burnout the flip side of that coin? Is there a specific definition for burnout that our audience should know? Yes, for sure. We could easily say it's the flip side, but what's known is the Maslach Burnout Inventory that has three factors. It's when stresses pile on so much, you feel emotional exhaustion. Ugh, don't want to be at work today. You start depersonalizing things. You become very cynical, and you also end up with a sense of low self-worth. Now, how can you tell the difference between stress and burnout? I always like to tell people, let's say you've had so much work and it's really getting to you, you're tired at the end of the day, not sleeping well, but you end up in the COVID-free area, you take a vacation and you go to the Bahamas and you have a wonderful 10 days at the sand, you're having fun, you go back to work, you feel refreshed. Then you're just stressed and you're able to overcome that. If you're burnt out, you do the same thing. You go to the Bahamas, you have your 10 days, wonderful time away. You come back and the first day on the job, you go, oh, why am I here? I really don't want to be here. That's where you've gone over the top, where stress has gone so high, your performance is now dropping off. That's the point where you have to be sure it's hard to get back up on that curve, the performance curve. What was the name of that scale? So you can actually have a quantifiable measurement of burnout. Uh, it's called the Maslock Burnout Inventory. 
MBI. Okay. Lots of places are using it in the AMA and Mayo Clinic studies. They've used it. They found that about 50% of doctors have at least one of those things. Now I should add up, that's a quantitative measure. And if you want to do it, it is a bit expensive. AMA has something called the steps analysis that's cheaper, easier to do. But I do want to bring up that there's actually symptoms of burnout. There's things that you can do. It's things like you had you were always on time. You were very punctual and now you tend to be late. You've always been pleasant with your coworkers and patients and now you're rude or you get written up with complaints. You used to not have any clinical problems, no quality problems. Now you've even got a lawsuit. So those types of things can really be signs. Now, as far as alcohol, maybe, maybe not, but you have to keep your eyes open for that. But people, especially doctors, tend to hide that both drugs and alcohol. So that's hard. But those other signs, somebody that seems to be different, that's a warning sign that maybe you need to intervene. To flesh that out for a second. So I assume burnout overlaps with chemical dependencies, addiction, or are they completely independent? No, they're not absolute always there at the same time, but they can certainly be somebody's feeling, especially what's a stress reliever. Different people relieve it differently. Some exercise for an hour extra a day, but some people eat too much or some people drink too much, or they take a little of the medicine home. Anesthesiologists especially known for taking some of the extra meds they put just so they can relax in the evening. And that's something to look for because maybe regular stress, they can handle without that. But as stresses go on and on, they may seek other solutions. Okay. All right. So let's lay out the landscape for a second here. So from a GI perspective, right? One, this is a stressful field where you might be on call, you're dealing with emergencies. As you identified, Dr. Reynolds, there has already been an increase in suicide, depression, burnout in the medical community, and very high in the trainee community, you know, I'm in New York City, and, and there have been multiple suicides of medical students in New York over the last few years, for sure. Well, let me just add to that a minute. You may not even know this, Matt, but um, my son went to Mount Sinai Medical School on his first day on the job. He's now a first-year resident in New Mexico, so in emergency medicine. But his first his first day at Mount Sinai, yeah. a fourth-year woman student jumped off the top of his dorm. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I was a medical student and a uh, internal medicine resident at Mount Sinai. I was no longer there when that occurred. Uh, this was only a few years ago, but I, knowing some of the team there, I know how hard hit everyone that community really, really was. For your son, that is such a difficult way to start. What, what's meant to be such a positive start to medical school there. This is an example for obviously that hits home for you and for your family. And on top of all of this, right, on top of these daily stressors, on top of this significant increase over the last year, pretty much, we've been dealing with a pandemic that has killed over 350,000 Americans, has impacted pretty much everyone's lives. Probably at least someone we know has been impacted from a purely professional standpoint, Trainees are being asked to do things that they did not train for. They trained in medicine, but their GI fellows are being, and GI faculty, Like uh, we were all redeployed into other positions. People in practice have their financial wealth mobility impacted by this. So that's a lot to be dealing with right now. And I would imagine that 2020 would have a 
significant higher rate of burnout and an absence of wellness. So can you talk a little about what the COVID-19 pandemic has done to physician burnout? I think it's gone off the roof. I don't have any specific measured numbers, but I do have some people on my chief of staff bootcamp faculty who may have those uh, presented in another month or so. Obviously, there's so many stresses, whether you're in a big institution or in a small practice. The small practice is especially trying to keep that cash flow going. Do you lay off your staff or not? Are you going to get PPP, that extra payments, or not? If you're a big practice, you don't qualify for that. But how do you keep those people safe? How do you keep them healthy? And they've got the problems. Your staff may have kids that are out of school thing we did, I do have one, one of my consulting jobs, I'm virtual chief medical officer at a rural hospital. The first thing we did was set up daycare so that we could keep our nursing staff. I mean, there's just so many things. The staff is worried, even if they're not sick, they're worried they could get sick or they could take it home to their family. Just even donning and doffing PPE, that's a pain. That's a whole different thing that we weren't trained to do, we're not used to doing. I did fly to New Mexico to see my son, and uh, this was the beginning of November, promising him I would not come for Thanksgiving or Christmas. I wore my N95 and a shield. It's hard to breathe through that. (laughs) It's not easy. So, I mean, that's just a basic functional thing. You mentioned, Matt, that people have been deployed elsewhere. Again, that's very challenging. Will they have enough? They don't want to make a mistake. As we've talked to some other GI leaders in this whole series, they're having to make important decisions for a lot of people based on incomplete knowledge. Right there, that's a huge stressor. How do you deal with that? And you're not going to get that knowledge right away, or you're going to get incomplete knowledge that then changes two weeks later. So the amount of stresses are huge. Now, again, it depends. Are you going to get burnt out? That also depends really on your your resilience and your ability, your, what we call stress tolerance. And there's certain things that help with stress tolerance. Some of it's your predisposition. Maybe you're a little more laid back. We doctors tend to be pretty type A. So we don't want to make a mistake and we want to make sure we get it right. And we want all the information that adds more stress. If you're a little more laid back, maybe you've been through something else before. Maybe you're a veteran and coming back from the Iraq war there's other things that might make you tolerate it a little better, but I would say I can't give you an absolute number, but I think it's gone sky high. I also happen to think we see epi- things on TV, but I think all those people work in the ICU or the front line in the ED, I think they've all got some PTSD. I think they just see it day in and day out. There's no way they get that break to take care of their mental well-being. And I urge people to try to at least find that day or even that hour or even that minute just to clear their minds. Do you think it's also difficult because, you know, you can't go take that vacation or get away or go somewhere or go to the gym because, you know, you're concerned about social distancing and, you know, being potentially infected. So there's so many you don't have the outlets you used to. Right. I um, miss my tennis five days a week. I always play. I start early in the morning because of my East Coast clients, but by 3.30 or 4 out here in California, I used to be on a tennis court. So again, that gets endorphins going, right? Walking the dog is not quite the same. She's lovely, but I think getting something that really gets your activity going, but gyms have been closed. And I know it's different in different parts of the country. 
But it's hard to get a regular exercise routine going, especially now, which is one mechanism to maintain your health and your well-being. So let's pick up with that, because part of the goal of our conversation with you today, I think for our audience, is to give them a toolkit as to what to do when they may identify some burnout in themselves, or, and perhaps even maybe a little more commonly, I look at Nina and she's my colleague and I'm seeing some changes or she's seeing changes in me. I don't want to put the burnout on you, Nina. (laughs) How do we ask our colleague or a trainee if they're burnt out? How do we approach that situation? And then maybe we can also talk about what do we do about it? Yeah, I think the question, first of all, we'll we'll divide that. I think there's a two-part question. You know, how do you approach somebody when you see something different or even if you notice something in yourself? It's important to talk to somebody. Now, what are the resources, though? So one thing people, especially people listening to this podcast, if they are in some type of leadership position, even in a small group, do they have a counselor, a psychologist, somebody they can refer somebody to, even if it's for one or two sessions, just somebody to talk to? For starters, I mean, there are basic things such as the Calm app or Headspace meditative mm-hmm. things. Even I have a watch now that has the one-minute breath thing, so you can just clear your mind a little bit. But my point, before you approach somebody, it's important to maybe have something practical. Not just say you seem like you're acting a little different. How are you doing? I mean, that's important. But it's really good and especially helpful If you have, here's a couple things that could help. Even if it's figuring out how to get out and walk around the park or just get some fresh air or do something that increases exercise, do something for your mental health, make sure you still keep eating well. Now you can still, even in this pandemic, and I just did this before this call, I actually had one person over, a longtime friend of mine, and we sat out in the backyard at least six feet, probably nine feet away, and just talked. And too often people become so isolated and they're even, even if they're married or have family around, they keep all that inside. Everything they brought home at work, they don't want to talk. And the family also doesn't want to hear it. It'll just make them more scared. Did you bring COVID home with you? That sort of thing. So, but again, don't forget having a conversation. You could go to somebody you see seems a little different. You know, you seem more tired or I've noticed you seem a little moody. How are you doing? And just try to listen, be a listener, get them talking a bit. And then if they bring something up, they're willing to share something, say, have you considered maybe going a couple times to see a psychologist? Now, if you say psychiatrist, they will absolutely back off. It's one thing we learned when those women doctors had killed themselves The doctors in that room, there were 90 of them. None of them would ever want to say they'd been to a psychiatrist, but they will at least see a counselor, a psychologist that could really help. So I think that's an important, important thing to do and encourage you yourself. If you have the time could be that person that just sits down as a friend and at least gets them talking. I'm I'm sure a lot of the, especially the bigger systems, may have wellness resources in place now, especially with this pandemic. I don't know in the community, are there trips for the uh, community physicians and practitioners that may have access as much to that big, those big resources? Well, I know St. John's, it's a hospital, I think 500 doctors on, they did, you know, they set up a well-being committee, but they also have a psychologist who is the person they referred to. They got something, but a small group 
I mean, you could ask around the community and find something or ask your hospital if they have something. It's very interesting. We've had what's called physician well-being committees in California since about 1975. What I found until fairly recently east of the Mississippi River, there were fewer of them and people would ask me how to set them up. But it often turned out it was a alternative to punitive action. You know, you made a mistake, you're a jerk, whatever. It's either peer review or well-being. Well, I think there's a different role. And we teach this now about the evolving role of the physician well-being, which is about proactive. How do we prevent this happening? How do we make sure you stay well? And pre-COVID, there were different things people were trying outings once a month or volleyball games, wherever you lived or things. Now we can't do all those, which also makes some of the docs more isolated. I'm hoping that can be resurrected post COVID and maybe think differently. Actually, you can use Zoom in very interesting ways. My tennis friends, we couldn't play, but we did Zoom happy hours. We would have eight or 10 of us on a little, just you know, once a month and check in see how people were doing. And I was always the one that I didn't have a lot to contribute. They were all bored and not working and talking about the latest Netflix films. And I, <laughs> I'm doing surge plans for the ICU and the ER. <laughs> but even so, connectivity between people can really help. So Dr. Reynolds, uh, let's go back to that second question. So what if you see it or you feel it in yourself? What do you do then? Okay, well, that's the tough one. We doctors often think we're invincible. We may know something's a little off, but we really push ourselves and try to keep going. And that's where so many do get burnt out. I think even if somebody says to us, gee, you seem a little off, a little tired, a little moody, or why did you snap at somebody? We push back. We say, you know, leave me alone. I'm okay. I'll get through it. We tend to do that. I think it's really important, though, especially for people to really think about it. Well, am I doing the best job for my patients? If I'm doing this, if I am this way, maybe I really should talk to somebody. And again, who are you going to talk to? You may not know, but it's important. Maybe talk to a friend, a mentor, maybe not the chief of your division, if you're in training, somebody you trust who can, will keep it confidential and maybe has a good referral for you. In academic institutions, there are psychology support services for trainees, for sure, uh, especially because we do know depression is a major issue among trainees. But again, referring yourself to a psychiatrist It's never going to happen. Referring yourself even to a psychologist, doctors will resist that. So it's important to say, well, at least I need to talk to somebody. And when we look at the Medscape study on stress and burnout, one of the ways that doctors do take care of themselves, some exercise like crazy, some do do turn to drugs, although that's a little, that's rarer, but definitely find a family member or somebody to talk to. And that's the opening thing. So best was to get them some professional help, but they may not raise their hand and say, oh, yeah, I'm going to go see the psychologist today. Gotcha. As you know, and as our audience, I think, knows, we had a session with Lori Kiefer. Uh, We had her on the podcast to talk about how to build resilience in oneself. So we talked about a little bit about journaling. We talked a little bit about self-reflection. Are there other things that you can do to mitigate against burnout in yourself or your team? Well, I do believe if you have a meditation practice of some sort, 
just being mindful. Mindfulness okay. certainly help focus on now, not the future. And you can start very simply. I like to do the one minute clock. I think I did that on a an AGA program, but it's the same thing. If you look at do this breathe exercise on your Apple Watch, it's one minute where you're not thinking about anything else. All the clutter goes away. If you can expand that to five minutes, so much the better, or five minutes twice a day. So that's a little bit of just getting away from everything that's bugging you. Remember, the number one stressor is the imagination, which means you can use the imagination to overcome it or reduce it. So very important. I mean, there's all sorts of guided imagery exercises you can do. You can breathe in a golden ball of light and have it go around your body and breathe out negative energy. There's all sorts of things you can find online with those types of things. Simplest thing, focus on your breath, breathe in, breathe out, and just take that quiet time to get rid of all the negative thoughts. The more the thought, every thought's going to build on each other and what you focus on expands. So the more you focus on the negatives, am I going to get through today? This day is terrible. Can I pay my bills? Am I going to lose my job? Do I have enough PPE? Oh, did that patient just cough on me? Uh, Those things, you've got to get rid of those to start doing some of the other things. Now, I think the journaling thing that Laurie Kiefer mentioned, that helps because that gets rid of some of those other thoughts that Mm -hmm. get out. Absolutely. Clear space in your head. That's why one of the apps called Headspace, a gentleman with a nice Australian accent does that one. And he teaches you how to meditate. I think they're 10 minute segments. Uh It's an easy place to start. Again, if you remember, number one stressor is the imagination. You feel what's going to happen. So working on the other side of it, putting some other positive thoughts in will help. So Dr. Reynolds, we've talked a little bit about kind of the mental health aspect of burnout and and to some extent stress, which certainly overlaps, does that extend into the clinical realm? Does that extend into other areas? For sure. I mean, the key thing is that stress can impact performance, whether it's clinical or just any other kind of work or even in your family life. And there is a well-known curve that relates stress to performance from 1908, actually. It's called the Yerkes-Dotson curve, and it's an upside-down U. And basically, you have a little bit of stress is good, and it actually makes you have a little better performance, such as you have a deadline, and so you get your paper done in time. So that's good. The issue comes up if you have too much stress. The other side of the curve, you crash and burn, it goes down. So performance can go down basically almost to zero where you're totally burnt out if the stress gets too high. So, and this can impact anything from your clinical performance to just your daily workload, your daily just functioning. So you've got to be very careful. Again, some stress is good. The other thing we should mention is does stress make you sick? And there's the Holmes-Rahe scale which is of life experiences that grades it. And you can, everybody can look that up online and it grades all these life experiences from the death of a spouse. You get a hundred points. A divorce gets you 75 points. Even a vacation gets you 10 points because you come back to that desk filled with things. And they were able to say that if you have 150 points or less, when you go through these 35 items, you're not going to get sick. If you have between 150 and 300 points, you have a 50% chance of getting sick in two years. And if you have more than 300, you have an 80% chance of getting sick in two years. 
And I gave this to the doctors who came to our chief of staff boot camp in New Orleans, and 29.5% were so stressed out they'd be sick. And one doctor came up to me after and says, Dr. Reynolds, I already had my GI bleed. I just bled out two units of blood in the ER. (laughs) Oh, dear. So it does work. I actually did it. I owned an emergency medical center that was flooded and ruined in the 90s. And it was a horrible time in my life. And I did the thing and I was off the charts and I ended up with thyroid cancer. They caught it very early. I'm fine. But I do believe if people really want to look at how much stress they're under and is it increasing, they should do it actually with COVID-19 going on. But also after COVID, they should take another look at it because I think it'll drop back down. Hopefully, it'll drop back down to hopefully, hopefully a sub one hundred and fifty number. It sounds like we're aiming for yes. here. Yes. If you drop down to four hundred and thirty, <laughs> that's not good. <laughs> that would be very fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. No, that's helpful. I, I think you know we always think about burnout and stress from the psychological standpoint. It's good to think of it as well how it would impact our job performance, but it's also and just kind of our overall health physical health, not just our mental well-being, which are equally important. But I think we focus a lot on the first, but not the latter. Right. So we talked about ourselves and our colleagues. So let's turn to maybe a more vulnerable population, which is our trainees, especially during this time. I mean, really all the time. I think we as, like I run a fellowship, right? And we're all involved in working our trainees and in medical school, we have to be vigilant for keeping an eye out from this. So are there unique things about burnout or um, about promoting wellness in a trainee population that we should think about? Well, one of the things is you may not know your trainees all that well. Fair. They may be fairly new to you and maybe they were starting to get burnout in March, April, May and come to you July one in the Mm -hmm. new fellowship program. So you don't know if there's been a real change or not. I, again, think instead of singling people out, maybe even having a workshop, maybe it's one or two hours, find a slot where they can have somebody, Lori teaching resilience, somebody teaching them some other tools to so they're aware of it and aware that you're aware of it and that you care. I mean, that's just really, and that there's a resource where, say they really had a horrible day, just horrible, horrible people were dying and they were trying to help and they felt overwhelmed. So they have a resource where they can go. You'd have to figure that out from your own training program, what could be done. But to be aware, these are young people who haven't had a whole lot of experiences, let alone horrible Mm -hmm. experiences, such as what's happening now. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. So as as we move into the next area, it sounds like some of your colleagues are doing scholarship and research within the arena of wellness, if trainees or young faculty are interested in exploring this area, not just for themselves and and their own wellness, but as a kind of an area of scholarship, you have any advice for them as to how they can get involved? Well, there are definitely people studying this and teaching this at universities. I mean, there's Karen Miyoto, who's a psychiatrist at UCLA. Depends on what university you're talking about, but that's her specialty. That is what she does. And if somebody in Southern California wants to, especially West side of LA, wants to do something, I would immediately refer them to her. If you don't have anybody, Mm -hmm. I would suggest your dean, 
start recruiting, looking for somebody who has this specialty and then encourage young people to join a well-being committee. Where I have that part-time CMO gig, we had the old style wellness committee, you know, oh, off with your head or go to well-being kind of thing. So not necessarily a good choice, but it turns out there's a young doctor who gave an amazing talk on stress and burnout and well-being to the whole medical staff. And I suggested to the chief of staff, he consider him for chair of a real well-being committee. And as I was talking to the young doctor, it turns out he ran one. He ran a well-being committee for a residency program. I didn't know that. I just knew he'd given a great talk. And this is his passion. This is what he really wanted to do. So now it might be somebody, a trainee listening, might have this passion and might want to form something like that and get a small group together and then start having those, you know, it could be monthly meetings or even now with the COVID-19 weekly lunch or weekly breakfast before your shift starts Mm -hmm. or whatever. So that, and again, it can be socially distanced. It can be by Zoom, but start talking about things you can do to make sure the doors are open, what resources are available. If there aren't any, then start looking for some. And again, it may be through psychiatry, which doctors may not want to hear, but they're often the ones that have been dealing with this, especially because of the increase in suicide. It could be psychologists as well. But I certainly urge people to think of this as a, another, there are actually some institutions that I just learned this about a year ago. Some big institutions and systems are recruiting chief wellness officers. Mm-hmm. So there's actually a career path for that. We actually do have one at ours. So that that is um, something that I, I have seen firsthand. As we wind down, one of the things that we've actually been asking all of our guests is, again, our podcast is targeted or a lot of our audience is young faculty, early in their career, trainees, maybe some mid-career folk. What is the best advice you've gotten? And what is the advice you give to people as they're kind of embarking on their career? Be true to yourself. Know the things that you do very well that you also love to do. And I have a whole exercise. I've done it for AGA where I have people make a list of everything they do really well. And we doctors tend to do lots of things very well. And then make another list of everything you love to do, including way back when you were little. And then the third list is what's on both lists. And here's the the trick. What's on list C, the third list, what you're good at that you love. 90% of what's on that list has to be in your next opportunity or you're just taking a job. It's not a career move. So make sure you have passion for what you're doing. And that's where if you start feeling burnout and cynical and whatnot, the love of what you're doing is gone. You need to regroup, rethink, and maybe do that exercise again. Start rethinking it. I love that. That's fantastic. Thank you. I may or may not be making a list after this. (laughs) (laughs) Easy to do. So, Dr. Reynolds, where can people reach out to you? Are you on social media? Are you on Twitter? How can people get in contact with you if they have questions or I'd like to reach out to you. Okay. Well, the website is medleadership.com. The email is srenolds at medleadership.com. And yes, I am on Twitter, both under the Institute for Medical Leadership, and I have a personal one too. And I don't remember my personal one, 
but they can do it. I don't use Twitter that much. Actually, I, my son used to tweet for me, but then he became a resident and he's too busy. <laughs> yeah. Don't put that on him during internship. That's just, <laughs> that would just be cruel. That's poor. That's poor. Right. So he doesn't. So I don't really tweet very often. Happy to have people contact me or reach me through my website for sure. Fantastic. And are there any projects with the AGA that are coming up that you want to hype up right now? Not with me with the AGA. My chief of staff boot camp's coming up. It's all going to be by Zoom. I've done it 36 times around the U.S. We've had over 800 hospitals and almost 4,000 chiefs of staff come. This is my first experience with Zoom. 12 hours of CME, two days, February 19 and 20, all by Zoom, with Grubhub providing the meals. <laughs> this is this is beginning to feel like the sponsored ad on other podcasts. <laughs> You asked what I wanted to type. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you very much for being with us today. I really appreciate your time, Dr. Reynolds. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the AGA podcast. To reach us, please email us at agapodcast at gastro.org or follow us on Twitter at MJWitsonMD, at NinaNandyMD, and at CSCMD, podcast production done by Resonant Recordings. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for listening and have a good one.